Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that has real live authors just <laughs> in time for the holiday season. That's I'm right. Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. And uh, we're here today with author of the book Servants, Lucy Lethbridge. Thanks so much for joining us, Lucy. I'm very pleased to be here. You know, you're our, our very first author That's that we've cool. ever interviewed. Mm-hmm. We've interviewed. Oh, great. Well, I'm, I'm doubly honored. Yeah, we've interviewed a Titanic expert. Right. And that's, I think, been uh, the extent so far, which yeah. was fascinating. But, you know, he didn't write a Great. book. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we both read the book, which is wonderful. Right. It's beautifully written. Yeah. And the research is really fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Well, and that, that sort of leads to the first question that I had, which was, first of all, what inspired you to write it in the first place? And then what was sort of that process like? Because it's, there's so much research in there that, you know, I just imagined that and I just don't even know where you would get started, you know? Well, um, I mean, it is interesting. In fact, my initial plan, I mean, quite a few years ago now, was in consultation with my publisher was to write a, a, a history of 20th century Britain looking at... Uh, domestic technology, looking at machines like dishwashers and so on. Um, And in the course of my research, I realized that, of course, actually, the biggest mark of change is not the machine, it's, 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 the, uh, it's labor, it's the servant. And it seemed to me as I was doing it that, I, uh, that I, I struggled to make the machine idea work properly. But um, it seemed to me that servants, the idea of servants, touched absolutely everything about British history, and indeed not just British history, but actually um, middle-class history all over the, uh, the Western world, mm-hmm. is that uh, it touched on labor, on work, on class, on deference, on changes in technology in the home, on family life, on architecture. I mean, there was virtually nothing that the aspect of servants didn't touch. And so that's why I chose to do it. And, and then, of course, I had to find the voices of servants, which was quite hard work because, of course, you know, um, uh, working class voices are harder to dig out than, um, you know, the more polished middle class or upper class voice, people who write memoirs. Mm -hmm. But they were there. Um, And there were some interviews that I found. There's a wonderful archive at Essex University called Edwardian Voices, which was compiled during the 60s. And it was um, uh, its transcriptions of interviews with the last Edwardian workers before the First World War. And that was completely fascinating. And and there are some books published, particularly after the Second World War, um, and all sorts of other little memoirs. And I also found, of course, that, um, you know, I had interviews and correspondences and diaries as I advertised in various magazines. Um, and there isn't anyone's life in this country that has not been touched by service, either the having of service or, more probably, the, the being in service. Yeah. yeah, and I thought something that was so remarkable to me is the way that all of the sources that you use build these beautiful through lines throughout each of the chapters because the scope is quite large. Because you often you'll yes. even go back to sort of uh, you know 18th century life and kind of compare and contrast you know, the evolution of servants in Britain, whether that's through policy decisions or whether that's simply, you know, sort of what society started to shift to. Um, but then you have these sort of touchstones peppered throughout who you just develop them so beautifully. Alice Osborne was really the standout to me. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, she's wonderful, isn't yes. she? She's and, my favorite too. Yeah, she's just, she's fascinating because, and I don't want to spoil it for our listeners, <laughs> but I mean, just the the way that her role changed and the fact that we can't even really tell exactly what her title was uh, based on the records that are left to us. But I, I really loved her, uh, her story in uh, the Roaring Twenties was very fascinating. <laughs> well, I think, I think what, what's so fascinating about when you look into the history of service is that, of course, the reason that historians by and large have left out service from histories of, of you know, of working of the working classes, or the or the rise of labour, and particularly the sort of politicisation of labour, um, is that of course it's very hard to sort of pin down servants because when people work in your own home and live with you, they become more than just workers, um, and of course that is open to exploitation, but it's also open to deep affection that relationship, and it becomes very much harder to pin a, a sort of political tag on it. Um, and that's why servants are very interesting. They're very, uh, they're very, their role is often very ambivalent. 
right. in comparison with with factory workers, for example, or or mill mill workers, or, or people in industry. So we have some questions that were submitted from our listeners, who we call our cousins. It's all a very <laughs> Downton Abbey thing, where it's all about the cousins. Uh, so yes. Cousin Allison wants to know how much racial and ethnic diversity existed among servants. It doesn't seem like there was much, but then it seems like some people returning from colonial postings might have brought their native servants to England. And if so, what would happen to the children of those servants? Would they go into service in England themselves? Well, I think um, I think that there wasn't much diversity is the answer, because, I mean... I mean, to take the first part of the question, because there wasn't very much ethnic diversity in the country itself. Um, and so you would be less inclined to find people of other um, ethnic backgrounds in service. Um, although there had been a fashion in the 18th century for um, young black boys um, from Africa who were usually um, brought back from, uh, from slave plantations. And they were quite fashionable as, sort of, as, as page boys. And one or two of them in the 18th century um, became quite important figures. But that's a, it's a, that's a sort of niche area so tiny as to, I think, it, it, it doesn't really constitute a demographic. It's just a, an interesting aspect. But, um, no, the answer, it, it, um, but, the, but the colonial aspect is a very interesting one. I didn't find any particular accounts, well, written down accounts of people bringing back colonial servants. But, um, but servants were used particularly in India by the British as a, um, a symbol of domestic superiority because the Indians themselves were, as you, as you, I'm sure you know, are, are very rigidly caste-bound. Um, and, and so rich and aristocratic Indians had enormous numbers of servants. And one of the ways the British sought to impress the Indians was to have these vast households of servants. So there are many, many accounts of these, you know, um, quite, a, quite a sort of modest um, India, uh, British official in India would have a household of maybe 30 or 40 people, which he would, would have been unthinkable for him at home. But it was it was a way of imposing a sort of domestic superiority on the um, on the Indians themselves. Uh, you know, they, they, it was it was it was a bit of flash. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't come across anyone bringing anyone back. Although, having said that, in fact, actually, I have a friend whose whose father was the BBC correspondent in India in the 1970s, and he brought one of his servants back, mm-hmm. and uh, the servant then became a. Um, a curry millionaire in Birmingham and is now oh, wow. vastly rich <laughs> and his children and one of his children is an MP so, um, so <laughs> it wasn't so even as I say that it, was, I, I didn't, it wasn't something I covered in the book but I actually have first hand experience <laughs> of that happening but later in life I mean post, post-colony yeah, you know, it's, post, it's much, much easier I think for that kind of thing to happen once you get you know, past uh, World War II absolutely um, and yes I think so yeah we have a bit of a follow-up question about the diversity question there from Cousin Allison. Um, she's curious about how often Roma or travelers were brought into service. And she's thinking specifically of the Lady J- uh, Julia Gray novels and how much of the uh, Roma ladies made and her relationship uh, with Lady Julia was. Well, I have to say, I never encountered a single example of... I mean, they wouldn't have been called Roma. I think we'd have called them gypsies, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Romanies. Um because of course they were travelling, um, and one of the, the the points about service is that it's a sort of uh, it's a commitment to one place. So I I have to say I didn't come across any examples at all, and would be surprised if that was a very plausible scenario that right. you would have a um, a, a Romany servant. Yeah, so probably artistic license there yeah. in that case. I think so. Yes, yes. And there was a great, and, and I don't know when um, uh, the, the, this novel was written, but but there was a great sort of romance around gypsies in before the Second World War, and there was uh, a lot of songs about them and a lot of um, a lot of interest in in old Romany culture. And it may emerge, it may be if the book emerges from that period, that may account for that for for. A, for a sort of romantic license on that. Okay. We have a question from our cousin Laura, and she asks uh, about bullies. She asks, how did servants deal with other servants who were mean to them, considering they live in the same house, 
and was it tattling if you told them a lord? Um, well, I think in a, in a house like Downton Abbey, um, you wouldn't have gone, you would never go straight to your, uh, to the top employer, as it were, to, mm. to, to Lord Grantham or mm. Lady Grantham. You would go to the housekeeper. Because the housekeeper, as it were, was your employer. She was the top of, your, of the servant pyramid. Um, and so if you really felt that that was the case, and I certainly think it must have happened, because in communities where people are living together, bullying does happen, doesn't it? You know, that, I mean, you know, relationship, you know uh, relationships get fraught. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I, I think the idea of, I mean, the idea of bullying in the sense that we understand it today would not have quite operated in the, say, 20s as it does now. I think people were, would have been less sensitive to uh, how dreadful it was, which, was, which isn't to, to mean that it, it wasn't awful to be bullied, but I think that um, you would perhaps not have... Uh, people felt they had to be more robust. They had to accept it. Um, it was part of the sort of hierarchical life, and I'm sure it was the same in offices or factories as well. It was part of the price of hierarchy, um, and that when you got to the top, you bullied someone in your turn. Mm -hmm. um, mm. But yes, it would have been the housekeeper's job to have dealt with that. Good to know. So if we have any complaints, we'll <laughs> go straight to Mrs. Hughes. Okay. <laughs> uh, cousin Krista asks what the career trajectory would look like for a young girl starting out in the scullery who eventually wanted to become the head cook of a large manor home, uh, or what it would look like for, say, a boot boy who aspired to be a butler or the valet. Uh, to the master in a large house. And were these leaps even possible? If you started out at the very bottom, could you eventually work your way to the top? Yes. I mean, in fact, it was the only way. All butlers, as far as I can... No one goes in as a butler, and no one goes in as a, as a cook. Everyone goes in as... Uh, I mean, it was, it, was, it was considered a sort of ladder of training. Um, so it was always the case. The cook has always been a kitchen maid, and the butler has always been a boot boy. Um, so... Uh, I think um, that would have been perfectly normal. I mean, Margaret Powell, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners will mm -hmm. know about, who's yep. this, uh, you know, wonderful memoirist. I mean, she started as a kitchen maid. And rather like uh, Daisy in Downton Abbey, she learns from uh, the cooks, the houses where she works, until great, gradually, gradually she inches up. And then she becomes a cook in a, in a small household, uh, an undemanding household, and she builds up her skills there. And so gradually she moves on and up the ladder. I mean, it required a, a degree of a commitment, but many servants were very careerist. Mm -hmm. um, because if you, you know, a, a cook um, in a house like Downton Abbey earned a great deal of money in comparison to other women workers of the time. Um, and so, and, and, a, and a really uh, expert cook would be hugely in demand. I mean, female cooks never earned as much as chefs. The really, really grand houses like Blenheim or, or Longleat had chefs mm. rather than... I mean, they had male cooks rather than female cooks. Um, and they were always... The, the, they would be paid the most money of all. But, but, a, but a, a high-ranking female cook like Mrs... Um, I've forgotten her name. Mrs... Uh, Mrs. Patmore is, is, you know, she, she would be earning an, enough money to look after herself in old age, to get a pension and so on. And that, you know, that was really valuable. She would, and she would be sought after. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she is, isn't she? By, by the American um, cousin mm -hmm. yep. who tries to lure her away, or is it, or is it Daisy? He tries to lure her away. Daisy. I can't remember. Well, it was, yeah, oh, it's it was, Daisy. That's yeah. right. Because you see, Daisy. Yes, you see, and then people and people often talk about you know good cooks being poached. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, um, that they were, you know, someone would s sneak down to the kitchen and offer them more money, and yeah. um, <laughs> and, and if you've got a cook, if you've got a cook, cook that was really, you know, that was uh, that was quite a big deal. Yeah. Well, and I think that's interesting, too, because I think, you know, sort of why, why Cousin Chris is asking that question is it, it, it's strange almost to think of services like this upward mobility, mobility situation when it seems to us as almost a symbol of like the, the class structure and the, you know, sort of ceiling to what you could get. But, it you know, you could actually, there was advancement in it. It wasn't 
just a static lifelong thing. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's one of the downsides to a show like Downton Abbey, where there's a very uh, limited scope where they can show that kind of mobility. Like, you see somebody like Thomas, who starts as a footman, and he becomes the underbutler. But, you know, it's a television show, and they kind of need to keep everyone more or less where they are. Right. Well, I think, funnily enough, I think, I think, but I mean, if, if you went to work in a country house, your opportunities for advance, advancement were very high. If you were prepared to put, if, 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 mm-hmm. if you were prepared to seize those opportunities, um, and particularly to be a cook or a butler or a housekeeper, these were what we call career servants. Um, I mean, most, you have to sort of remember that, that for most of the flourishing of domestic service, something like 90% of servants were employed as single-handed servants in kind of lower middle uh, or middle-class households. So, And their, their opportunities for advancement were small. I mean, there wasn't a career ladder. But in these country houses, it was, it was, it, there was a very recognized um, uh, ladder of invan- advancement that would take you up the trail. And if you were a bu- butler, you know, a, a butler earned the same, if not more, uh, than a, a provincial bank manager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, what he didn't have, and it's, this is the curious thing about servants, is servants don't have social status. They only have social status in the servants' hall. Outside the servants' hall, they have no status. They're considered servants. Mm-hmm. And they're slightly, they're despised by top and bottom. Mm-hmm. But within the servants, but if you're prepared to put up with that, and you don't mind, um, then the servants' hall, it, you know, it, it, it's a, a high-earning place where expert skills are valued. Mm-hmm. Okay, and next we have a question from our cousin Laura, who asks a question that I myself have often wondered, which is, how can a servant try to find a husband or a wife or even pursue a romantic relationship when they had to work so much and were always under the watchful eye of the house? Well, I think it's very difficult. I mean, and again, this is the difference between the big houses and the middle houses. Mm. So those servants who are lucky enough to be employed in a, in a large country house um, had much more opportunity because they met men. You know, they met footmen and people. People came in and out and visiting valets and so on like that. You know, that, that there was a there was a through flow of possibilities, and they could go to the village, and there were village dances. I mean, it wasn't encouraged, but it was there. Whereas, again, I think that the really awful thing is was to have been a single-handed servant, a young servant girl. And there was a wonderful survey published in uh, nineteen sixteen, which was a a social, by, by a social worker called C.V. Butler, who um, asked servant girls, thousands of servant girls, to fill in questionnaires. And all of them say that they don't mind the work or, or they mind the work less than the loneliness. They never meet any men. And, and um, marriage is escape. Um, and there is no way out but marriage. And Margaret Powell says that. And Margaret mm-hmm. Powell, of course, marries the milkman, who is the only man mm-hmm. she ever sees because he comes regularly to the door with the milk. Mm-hmm. Um, she never meets anyone else, um, and so I think it was terribly difficult. But but in the large country houses, you know, it was it was uh, there was a whole sort of setup. There were servants' balls, there were village dances. Uh, it was far easier, and of course there was much more space for married quarters. So if you did get married, you might be given a cottage in the grounds, or, or and so on. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cousin Allison has another question. She asks, yeah. uh, while she realizes the scope of the book is from the 19th century to modern times, she wants to know how did service in the 19th century differ from previous eras, and what effects did the Industrial Revolution have on service, both in terms of offering employment alternatives and how technological advances changed the jobs themselves? And then she also wants to know if there were jobs and positions that were phased out or transferred from being performed by people employed by a house to being performed more by an independent contractor. We have very, very uh, curious cousins with a lot of questions for you. <laughs> okay, well, the, fir- the first bit, I think one of the really fascinating things about domestic service in the sense that we understand it um, is this, you know, the kind, of, the kind of one might call period television drama mm-hmm. idea of service, which is uh, the kind of mob cat maid, the butler, the madam will see you now, you know, all that stuff, is... A, a, really a Victorian invention. It didn't exist before the Victorians, mm. or hardly, or and certainly not in that form. It, the Victorians invented 
a sort of separation of work and family within the home. And this comes about, there's a, there's a huge amount of region, reasons. One of them is the rise of evangelism um, and also the rise of the middle class, which is a direct response to the Industrial Revolution. You get a kind of middle class, a huge expansion of the urban middle classes. Um, and um, among many of the things, is uh, the, the, the features of this period is that, that um, work becomes removed from the home. So men, for the first time, for example, who work, go out to work in offices. And this is unheard of. This is not an 18th century idea at all. You either, in the 18th century, you either didn't work at all because you were a gentleman or you were a manual laborer. Mm. The, the sort of middle class idea of working in an office, of going out, sort of removes work from the home. So the home becomes a sort of sanctified place. The family becomes sanctified, represented entirely, particularly by Queen Victoria and Albert and their own family, which is an essentially a sort of middle class construct. And so what you get is uh, the, the, the Victorian invention of a home that has two communities within it. So it has a sort of below-stairs world um, with kind of servant steps, basements, back corridors, back stairs, tradesmen's entrances, all that kind of thing, and that belongs to the workers. And then you have the family enshrined in the main house. And Victorian architecture echoes this. In 18th century architecture, Georgian architecture, um, servants and their masters live on the same floor, often in the same bed. You know, they're all jumbled up together. The Victorians impose this sort of separation. And Victorian houses, I'm speaking from a Victorian house in London now. Um, yeah. I have a flat in it. But, you know, it, the whole house is set up um, to be sort of separate. There's a, there's a basement, there's a basement entrance, there's a back entrance, there's back stairs. Um, and, and it's very much, this, is, this house is built about 1880. Um, and it very much reflects this idea that the middle-class home had to be sort of facilitated by a by a working community within it that you that the family wouldn't want to see that was separate. And so that's the first thing. That's what what. So the idea that we have of a of a of a kind of pyramid of service, you know, where where all the classes are carefully calibrated from the top to the bottom is a Victorian invention. And we tend to think of it as being a, a, an aspect of the very oldest English history. It isn't. It's as completely bogus, really, as, <laughs> yeah. you know, tartan or um, harvest festivals. or There's loads of Victorian inventions, a sort of oldie England. Um, yeah. and, um, uh, and the Industrial Revolution, I think, had a, had a huge effect because, of course, it opened up other opportunities for women's work in factories. And um, and later on in clerical work and in as secretaries and so on, that um, made service much less appealing to them. And then you get what what came to be called by the middle classes anyway the servant problem, which just meant that they couldn't get enough of them. And um, and so that changed. So so by the twentieth century, um, there is a sort of feeling that this world, this created Victorian world, is really just about to end. And the and people have to start thinking about how they're going to face this change, and that's then for the first time the British really look at technology and household technology and see how they can use it because they realise that they're living on borrowed time. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating how long it took for the older country houses to adapt and to really embrace these new technologies because the perception was that it was very middle class uh, to switch from yeah. candles to gas, for example. Uh, and that the the elbow grease of the servants had something to do with the honor of the house, and that was fascinating to me. Well, I think it, I think, and it still goes on. I mean, you know, there there is a great aesthetic cult in this country of discomfort, <laughs> um, and I I can tell you that with some feeling because I have stayed in in country houses where they are absolutely freezing, and um, and there is this there is there is a there is a disdain for. Uh, for the sort of technologies that you would take for granted in the States, it is still considered a bit suburban mm. to have a, you know, a sit-on lawnmower. Or, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, there's loads of areas. Where, I was going to say, because I think it it's actually you considered that here as well. Wow. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, well. It's just a sort of, because it means you don't have lots and lots of gardeners to do it, to do it, uh -huh. to push, push lawnmowers for you. And I, and, and, and of course people don't, people don't articulate this to themselves, but aesthetically, we have a, 
we have an aesthetic here which we find very pleasing and and it is very pleasing and it's very attractive and it and it exports beautifully around the world but of sort of shabby chic you know which is a sort of cult of 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 oldness of 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 things uh being inherited rather than bought new and and all and, and all that is part of it i think all this is part of this this slight this this disdain for um household technology uh which um which suggests a kind of absence of real labor. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, Downton Abbey wouldn't exist if it wasn't for all that stuff. That's so. true. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Nor would we have this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a marriage of the old and the new over here. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we have a, cu- a question from cousin Isela, and I apologize to her if I'm mispronouncing her name, uh, but she wants to know, uh, was there genuine affection between the downstairs staff and the upstairs adults and the upstairs children? And did up and downstairs children ever develop real friendships, or did the class differences keep it more on a servant-slash-served basis? Well, I think there was real affection. I mean, what I found... I mean, one of the reasons I was particularly interested in this book, I, if I could just be a bit personal, is that when I was a child, my grandparents had a cook that they had, had been with them since 1927 when they got married. And she was very much, I mean, she was a, a, I mean, to say she was a feature of our childhood is an understatement. She was absolutely part of it. She was there all the time. And they were three old people all living together. But she had been employed by them when they were very first married. And um, she'd been in service at a place called uh, Dunster Castle which is a huge sort of Downton Abbey-like place, mm. uh, when she was about thir- from about 13, before she went to my grandparents. And um, I, my family always spoke of her with love and looked after her. And, and you know, she, and, and certainly she was very protected and loved, but she never... And this this was an embarrassment to me as a child because I was a, of a different generation. She never ate with us once. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that um, I find that difficult because I'm, a, I'm of a generation that would find it, that finds it hard to imagine that you can be fully friends with someone and not sit down to eat at the same table with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it seems to me extraordinary. Um, but that was my, you know, that was my grandparents' generation way, and it was her generation, Blanche's generation's way as well. And um, so what I often found is that when I was doing my researches, that employers will very often talk about loving their servants, and employers will often say, oh, we absolutely loved each other, she was my best friend. But you never, ever, ever, I never read any servant saying that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Because I think that, the, the, the essentially, um, although you can have affection and certainly you can feel very looked after, uh, that um, essential equality is missing. You know, that, that it's just not there. It's not there in the relationship. Um, which isn't to say that some people didn't um, cross that divide. I would suspect that in the very large houses like Downton Abbey, it happened rather less because there was a whole sort of system of deference there. Um, and I did find some very nice little stories um, in more middle-class households where people were thrown together in a much smaller space mm-hmm. of really great affection. Um, and uh, but I think you can have you can have mutual respect and you can have deep affection, but whether you can call it love, I. I'm not quite sure, even if you're sharing the same space for 60 years. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, um, one of you is the employer and one of you is the employee. And I think, you know, if you are the employer, I think it's easier to kind of put that outside of your mind. But if you're the employee, it's much, much harder well, for you to separate uh, the yeah. professionalism well, because, you know, you know, your next meal is coming from this person. And well, you're a, that... depend- you're, a, you're, you're a dependent, aren't mm-hmm. you? And, exactly. and, I, and I, I think you can't really... You can't really lose that. So that's what I. That's what I've found. So I'm, I mean, I because as I say, there there were accounts of of deep affection, but they were not. It seems to me in the ones I read, and that 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 it, that's not quite the same as as the friendship of equals. Mm-hmm. And how about the and, children? Did they mix at all? 
Um, well, I think they did in childhood, but you see mostly um, middle and upper class children in this country go, well, certainly uh, up till the Second World War would have gone away to boarding school at mm. eight. Mm. And I think that's a very big divide that happens very, uh, that, that's the moment of, of change um, when they go away to school and they make their own friends and they, they, it, and they begin to inhabit a different world. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I didn't really encounter, although funnily enough, I did interview one former butler from, uh, who's now retired, or he's, um, and he'd worked in Scotland, and he told me that his children, he'd lived on an estate in Scotland, and his children had played a lot with his employer's children, and he considered it a great advantage for them, and in fact, they had both become lawyers, which is something was unheard of in his family, mm-hmm. and he put that down to them sort of, as it were, kind of mingling with children for whom these kind of things were considered to be normal. Um, so, uh, I don't know, but I, I, I think, I think that, yeah, there was a break. There mm-hmm. was definitely a break. Mm-hmm. So th- now we have a, just a very practical question. <laughs> uh, cousin Horton wants yeah. to know, how did the bells work? Uh, presumably the strings go from every important room down to the basement. He wants to know if they would run on the walls or underneath the plaster behind the paneling and, uh, what happened if a rope ever tore? And he wants to know if there were bells in the servants' dormitories and corridors or whether someone had to stay up all night in case somebody upstairs needed something during the night. Well, to answer the very last bit first is that servants did go to bed because I have an anecdote in my book. Um, and there was, a, there was quite a sort of, it was considered a very, um, you know, very naff to, to ring for a servant in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. to wake the servants in the middle of the night unless it was terribly urgent. Because you know it was just bad. It's just bad man management, isn't it? You know that to, to have um, not to allow your employees to have any sleep at all. But so um, so I don't I, I I don't think they'd have heard the bells in the middle of the night anyway. Because on the whole, they were in the servants' hall mm-hmm. or near the servants' hall, and most of the servants slept in a different. You know, they would sleep in a different wing, so they may not. They wouldn't have heard the bells. Mm. Um, now the first, so the first bit was, is how did the bells work? Well, I suppose. Oh dear! Have I ever, have I ever faced kind this of like question? It's a very complicated engineering <laughs> right. problem. Well, in the old days, in a smaller house, of course, you just ring, you ring a bell next to your, you know, you'd have have a bell, and you just uh, like a little handbell. Well, and I think we um, see on Downton Abbey. Uh, at the dower house, yeah. the dowager countess, that's still how her household functions. She just takes her bell with her. And her house is small enough, and she has a small enough staff that that's sufficient for her. Yeah. Yes, I think it, yeah, exactly. So, so, that the large, so, so that would have been the normal, and that in most houses would have been the normal case if it was small enough. But then you get these, I suppose, I suppose they were pulleys, weren't they, the first ones? And in fact, the bells that are on the front of my the American edition of my book, which is, mm-hmm. uh, uh, those are from the National Trust, and those are those are pulley ones. So I suppose I supp- I'm ashamed to say, <laughs> I suppose I don't know. I suppose the pulleys went along under the ceilings. Um, you know, they kind of looped around the house. Mm-hmm. Well, you and know, you pulled. We have a very very um, resourceful listenership. So <laughs> if somebody writes in and lets us know, we'll be sure to forward that on to you as well. <laughs> Well, I think if, if they, if they, I mean, the, the place to look would be the, the National Trust website, mm-hmm. um, because uh, th- that picture, in fact, comes from the National Trust archive. They might be able to, I mean, it, it'll come from a house where those bells still exist. Mm-hmm. So uh, but that might be able, they might be able to f- fill in the details on, but I'm, I'm just assuming, but then, and then of course, electric bells work on, you know, through electricity. Sure, um, sure. I mean, that's, I mean, more than that, I can't tell you. I'm ashamed to say. But <laughs> That's okay. We yeah, tried, that's... and now we know about the National Trust website, mm-hmm. and uh, we're all going to go from there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm say, if we knew everything, we wouldn't have a podcast anymore. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm, I'm... Is it a Downton Abbey podcast? Is it a... Yes, yes. We, uh, we started with Downton Abbey. Uh, about two, almost three years ago. Yeah, close to three. And then uh, when the series ended for that part of the year, uh, we just kind of started covering other uh, Edwardian and post-World War I era uh, television and film. 
And right. uh, great. Yeah. And, and honestly, last year was the year of Titanic. We got absolutely sick to the teeth of the Titanic. <laughs> oh, amazing. And then this year we're approaching the saturation point on World War One. We have we have yeah. seen enough to know that we have seen too much. That's very funny. So, yeah. And our next question actually is about Downton Abbey which is from Cousin Carly, and she wants to know how realistic or unrealistic is Downton Abbey's portrayal of homosexuality within the serving class? And also, is there any resemblance between below-stairs sexuality and prison sexuality in the sense that one is basically trapped in the same building with the same people for years on end? Well, I mean, I wouldn't have thought, to take the last bit first, I wouldn't have thought that somewhere like Downton Abbey would be like a prison because it's mixed, you know, so I mean, right. I, I'm assuming what she's saying is that if, you're, um, if, you, if, if your choices are narrowed, then, then um, homosexual encounters are more likely. But in fact, that isn't the case in, in Downton Abbey, is it? So, um, right. Or houses like Downton Abbey. So I don't think that, I don't yeah, and I think think actually, that would work. I think the question of prison sexuality is actually divorced from the concept of how they portray homosexuality. I think she just means in general, it's the same group of men and women uh, kind of seeing each other all the time. But as you say, I mean, they do have tradespeople coming in and out, and they do have a very robust social life, what with the cricket match <laughs> and uh, all the things that happen in the village. Well, it must have happened a lot. I mean, I mean of course, people, were, people did have a, have a different view of sexuality. I mean, they didn't... Um, uh, they didn't... Um, there was a great fear about not being respectable because, of course, if you got pregnant, if you were a woman in that, as we've seen in Downton Abbey, mm-hmm. right. the housemaid who got pregnant, it's, it's, it's you know, it, it's instant dismissal with no references and really no options at all. So it was a very, very frightening thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but I think that, that the portrayal of homosexuality seems to me, I have to say, implausible. In in the the, the Downton Abbey, the, mm-hmm. what was it a couple of series ago? Mm-hmm. Because um, simply because I think that although of course there was homosexuality, why wouldn't there be? There is, you know, but but um, I think the attitudes that are shown towards it by Lord Grantham, I think, seems to me to be unconvincingly modern an mm-hmm. attitude. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine someone of his type or the type that he is represented as being um, in whatever it is, 1912, um, having that liberal attitude towards homosexuality. I think it, I, I just, it was, a, it was, a, it was criminalized. Mm-hmm. It was, right. You know, it was, it would be another 55 years or something before it's decriminalized. Right. Um, I just, I, I think that seems to me to be unlikely, but I think that that's a sort of modern poetic license. You're, you know, you've got a, you've, Wow. Julian I'm... Fellows is, 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 is he's trying to represent a sort of, um, uh, 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 he's trying to very hard, and I think um, perhaps a little too hard, to represent the English aristocracy at the time as being um, much more liberal than they actually were right. um, about all sorts of things. Well, I mean, mean... He, they are, they're terribly nice, aren't they, oh, on very. the whole? They are. <laughs> uh... and, and, I think, and I think in many ways that that's Julian Fellows' particular agenda, is to sort of rescue the English upper classes <laughs> from, the kind of, from, the, like... from the black... It's whole like of criticism into which they... our podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, really? We, uh, <laughs> we refer to him almost exclusively as Baron Julian. And, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, he's definitely got that agenda. And, I mean, it's something that we've discussed, uh, I think, both yeah. on the podcast and amongst ourselves as fans of Oscar Wilde. But if you look at sort of, you know, and that's not very far back from where Downton Abbey is. I mean, there just wasn't even a word for homosexuality at that point. It was not viewed as a choice you would make in lieu of having a wife and children necessarily. And I mean, I'm sure there are... It was, it was, it was simply sort of unmentioned. And in fact, I think, if anything, he, he gives the, rather, typically, rather characteristically, Julian Fellows gives the, the, the butler and the, um, it's the other footman, I can't remember his name, the one who... Jimmy um, Kent. Yeah. The very good-looking one, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, he gives, he gives, he gives, he gives, he gives those two, doesn't he? The kind of... Um, prejudiced 
intolerant mm-hmm. attitudes. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's slightly typical of Julian Fellows, that he, as it were, sort of lets off the upper, the upper classes are fantastically sort of liberal and modern thinking. Mm-hmm. And, the, yeah. and, the, and below stairs, they're, they're prejudiced and narrow-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, actually, that attitude would be much more prevalent right, right through, mm-hmm. right through the system, right, right through the classes, I think. Right. Yeah, it would have been tough for us to go on watching the show if Lord Grantham had had him, you know, sent off to prison, though. So I think he had to. Yeah, <laughs> he know. did have to kind of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants have... to watch the reality. I don't think. No, no, of course not. They want to watch this lovely, and it's and again, it's Julian Fellows's agenda to 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 remind us of this lovely codependence, isn't it? When everyone <laughs> looks after each other. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It's my turn to ask a question. Uh, Cousin Yusela asks another question. She wants to know what happened to servants. Uh, should they ever get hurt or have an industrial accident? Uh, if there was any kind of workers' compensation or if they got sick and could no longer perform their job. And we saw, I believe it was last season. I think so. Uh, in Downton Abbey that Mrs. Hughes was to be taken care of if she did in fact have breast cancer. But if it was someone who was newer and had not been with the family... I mean, I guess really, you know, is that a likely outcome even for Mrs. Hughes, uh, for the family to offer that kind of support? Well, in a way, they had to. After, after 1911, the, the, the Lloyd George's Insurance Act, uh, you had to. Um, and employers had to contribute towards insurance to cover illness in their servants. And this was considered by many of them an outrageous intervention of the state into their private um, relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, there was a huge fuss about it. Um, but so, uh, so with Mrs. Hughes, we're talking about the 1920s, aren't we? Correct. So that, the, the, so that she, she, yes, I think that would, she would have, they would have been morally and legally obliged to look after her. Um, and in fact, would have had to take out insurance to, to make sure that she was, covered by that but i don't i mean the thing is that that we're talking about times that um i mean there was i mean there there were there wasn't really any functioning um union for domestic servants i mean there was nominally a domestic servants union but it hardly had anyone in it because no one wanted to employ someone who was in a union mm-hmm. um so, um, and after a while, they joined the General Workers' Union. You could say that there was some sort of protection there, but it was a very ununionized profession. Um, and so I think you probably would hardly be covered at all. So you would be, to an extent, um, uh, after, certainly before 1911, you would have been completely dependent on the goodwill of your employers. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, but there would, would there would have been coverage after 1911. There was coverage, and there was certainly after the war. There was a, um, you know, the rise of the Labour Party made things a great deal different for, you know, made things different for for employers and, and employees, and um, and there was new legislation to um, to protect employees from sort of work injury and so on. I did think it was interesting because having read in the book about the Insurance Act, that's I don't think ever mentioned on Downton Abbey. And there's actually a plot line earlier, I think, in season one where Mrs. Patmore is losing her eyesight. Right. And it's presented as the upper class being very charitable mm-hmm. when, in fact, it would have been, you know, they would have been paying into the insurance as would have the servants. Um, right. So I think it's really yeah. interesting that they completely elied that, even as I believe in that season, we see the Dowager Countess complaining quite a bit about Lloyd George. Yeah. And... Uh, you know they never they never bring the politics of it in in any kind of substantive way because Mrs. Patmore obviously was very concerned she would be sacked for having lost her eyesight when in fact you know there was this safeguard and this protection in place to take care of her. Well, a little bit, yeah. It wouldn't have been very much, but it would have been something. And and um, yes, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? How that I noticed that um, in that first because it was such a big deal the nineteen in nineteen eleven. It was a really you know, had sort of seismic social ripples that those insurance act because it was seen not only by employers but by many career servants as being uh, a sort of imposition by the state into mm-hmm. private lives and domestic lives that was absolutely, um, uh, you know, a, 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 just a sort of um, hideous intrusion. Right. Um, so. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? How how it doesn't it doesn't appear at all in Downton Abbey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
we actually had as our next question, and we've gotten into it in the last couple of questions, um, what your general opinion of Downton Abbey was, and I think we've gotten some idea of that. I, I wonder, I guess, what I would ask then is what, what do you think it does well? Well, actually, funnily enough, I, I, I think quite a lot of it is quite good because I think, as I say, he has a feeling, mm-hmm. which isn't the same as sort of... I, th- I, think, I think the details may not quite work, but I think the general feeling works. Um, and I think he's particularly good on downstairs. It seems to me that downstairs is much more convincing than upstairs, mm. um, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, I think he's sort of... Uh, I mean, he, he's quite good at portraying the drama of what it was to go into service and how it sometimes... You know, it's sometimes... That, that with some people, like Carson, it's a sort of career, and with some people, it is a, a sort of desperation, and it's a sort of inescapable, like Paul Daisy, mm-hmm. or... Um, with others, it's both a kind of, um, uh, it's something that, for which there is no choice, but there is also, um, uh, but there is, are also possibilities in those, that big house service. And I think he does that rather well. And I think the characters are much more, downstairs are much more attractive and defined and convincing to me. I mean, I, I feel that they're much more fully rounded than upstairs. I don't know about you, but I, I feel upstairs <laughs> feels to me much more, like stereotypes or cliches. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I mean, part of the frustration that we have particularly, I don't know if you've seen series five at this point, but we've seen the whole of it uh, at this point. And, you know, for us, we feel like they've missed a lot of opportunities downstairs, particularly with the social upheaval that came after the war to really tell some interesting stories. And they're going back to this sort of very soapy well, and we won't get into too many specifics just because not all of our listeners have seen it since some of them are waiting for the American uh, airing. Right. But, you know, there's that piece of it. And then, you know, it it feels like with sort of the elevation of Branson from being a chauffeur to being, you know, pulled into the fold of the family. And there's... That is the most... (laughs) I think that is the most egregiously unconvincing bit in the whole of Downton. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid I just think it is not true. It doesn't feel true to me at all. Mm-hmm. That that he he would have uh, I mean it, it is unthinkable and coming apart from anything isn't it, it, the, the fact he's a chauffeur is is the least of the implausibilities the <laughs> fact that he was a ca- he's a Catholic IRA supporter mm-hmm. yeah I mean that is that would be impossible it yeah. is impossible to think of him having that uh, I just thought that was and again I think that's Julian Fellows trying to show you that the upper classes are, are terribly nice underneath. Exactly. Well, um, and, and we had that experience. We recently covered um, the Irish film The Wind That Shakes the Barley which goes into detail with the civil war in Ireland and we had really I mean we're both of Irish descent but we didn't really have a solid understanding of what that was like and after we watched that we were like Branson is the worst kind of coward then <laughs> if that's what's going yeah. on and then just so unlikely that the family would be able to overlook his involvement in all of that because that all struck very squarely at the heart of of what keeps the British aristocracy where it was at the time yeah and Catholic, and you, I mean, you have to sort of be here to know how the, the feeling, the, the sort of anti-Catholicism here, which, you know, until the Second World War, if not beyond, I mean, my, I'm a Catholic because my grandmother was a convert, mm-hmm. and her family never spoke to her again. Wow. Mm, yeah. um, I, mean, you, I mean, this is in the 20s. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I mean, but so, so that, that is the sort of atmosphere you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And he did, didn't he? He kind of, he kind of, slight kind of suggested this by having Lord Grantham being a bit cross about having to go to a Catholic church for the wedding. <laughs> right, right. But, um, but it, it just, you, you know, it is unthinkable. It is absolutely unthinkable that an IRA supporting Catholic would have been um, mm-hmm. embraced into the family mm-hmm. in that way. Um, um, and I find, and I find the kind of um, what's the what's the um, uh, oh, Lady Mary's the, co- the cousin who's come to live with them. Oh, Lady, Lady Rose. Rose. Yes. I mean, she, you know, she's a pretty, and she's obviously supposed to be a flapper and things, but she just doesn't feel real to me as a character at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. I mean, she doesn't feel to me anything like as real as Daisy. Agreed. Or, yes. Or even Anna and Bates, who mm-hmm. aren't that real, but they seem <laughs> a bit more real than her. <laughs> Definitely. No. 
So then uh, this um, is our, our final formal question. And then, you know, if we want to keep chatting, we can keep chatting or move on to something else. Uh, but we're okay. curious if there are other films and TV shows set in the Edwardian era or really, you know, kind of at any point uh, during the scope of the book that you think are especially good portrayals or that you just particularly enjoy? Well, I think um, Upstairs, Downstairs, the old Upstairs, mm-hmm. Downstairs of the 70s was really good. And it had, and, and what's interesting about it, you know, it was, it was written, it was or devised by um, Eileen Atkins, who's a great actress, and uh, Jean... Uh, uh, Marsh, I think. Um, Jean Marsh, that's right. And, and you know, their, 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 um, their families, they came, their father, both of them had fathers in service. I think they were both butlers. Mm. And um, it seemed to me that they, because they're closer to that world... I mean, they're closer in generation to that world. It was just, it was just superb. I thought that, you know, you, it, that portrayal is absolutely brilliant, I think. Um, and much more, I don't know, much more sort of uh, rounded and vivid. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I wonder, it's, uh, it's a bit closer uh, in terms of when it was produced to yes, that exactly. era versus now when it, you know, everyone has really evolved in a, in a very different direction, I think. And also, I think it's less concerned. It's less concerned to stress to its viewers how liberal we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's less of that. I mean, it is simply portraying a world. I mean, it doesn't I don't think it. It doesn't feel. And I think this is maybe something to do with we we have a kind of uneasy attitude towards history now, in that we're less inclined to to allow it to be what it is, and um, mm. we're more un, we're more uncomfortable about its more, its areas that we find uncomfortable. Um, and I think then they just they just let it be what it was. They let the past be how it was. Um, and they, uh, without, they leave it to with, the viewer to decide. Yeah, well, they how, say this is this that... is how this is how it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think now we're 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 rather busy, kind of. Um, well, it's rather like the sort of uh, attitude towards homosexuality in Downton Abbey. We're, we're busy trying to stress how we, the producers of this program, do not share this view. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and we end up sort of, we end up saying that, you know, um, making history like as history wasn't. I mean, making, you know, um, and so I think that that's, uh, Upstairs Downstairs, I think, is a, is, a, is a very good portrayal of that. Um, there's a film I absolutely love, um, which um, I don't know if, uh, you made it's from the sixties called The Servant by Joseph Losey, okay. which is set actually after the war, after the Second World War. So it's not really Edwardian, but it's um, and it's with Dirk Bogart as a butler and James Fox is his master, and it's terribly sinister. And gradually, 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 they change places, um, mm. and Dirk Bogart has all the power, and it's it's just a brilliant psychological thriller. Um, but it does capture, I think, very well a changing world. You know, a world where uh, which had one foot in the past, um, and you have this very effete, rather useless aristocrat who actually can't function mm-hmm. without help, and you have this very clever uh, butler played by Dirk Bogard who manipulates him, um, and it's 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 a brilliant it's a brilliant film. Well, and that reminds um, me of the anecdote about uh, Winston Churchill's butler or his valet. Uh, oh yeah. Late in his life, he can't he can't even dress himself at all. Here's this huge man who's changed the course of history, and he still needs every piece of his clothing to be put on him. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's sort of disabled, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what else do I like? Uh, well, there's some very. Um, I don't know. The Foresight Saga, of course, is one of the great. I don't know if, if you got that over in the States. That was one of the great sort of 70s series. Yes, very, very um, popular here, actually. We hear frequently from our listeners that we need to cover it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, The Foresight Saga is fa- I mean, it's a fantastic book. Um, and then it was um, a brilliant, uh, um, a brilliant uh, 70s series. And then they did another one in the 90s, mm-hmm. or even the early 2000s, with Damien Lewis, you know, from Homeland. Oh, yes. Playing Soames Foresight. <laughs> Um, and that's also that's also rather good, um, 
which I thought we recently had. Did, did you get Parade's End over there? Yes, yes, we actually we covered it on the show, and we are uh, we were nominally anti Benedict Cumberbatch, <laughs> maybe just <laughs> to be contrarian, but we adored it. We yeah. thought it was so well done. It was, wasn't it? It was very good. Yeah. Yes. Um, no, I really enjoyed that. Um, well, we loved we loved the portrayal of the war in it actually because. You know, Downton Abbey in particular gives a very, I think, candy-coated view yeah. of what that war actually was like. And I think uh, Parade Zen did such a nice job of getting at the sort of absurdism that was going on. I mean, there's some very darkly comic scenes there in the trenches, but at the same time, you also see uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as Christopher Tegens and just the change in his face. Mm-hmm. From oh, it's you know, brilliant, being, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. From working in intelligence and then just being thrown straight into the trenches, we were just we were so hugely impressed with it. Um, no, I thought that was I, I thought it was really well done. It was Stoppard, wasn't it? The, the screenplay. Yes, I yes, thought it, yes. it was it was great. Um, what do I don't know? We have some. It's very difficult, isn't it? Because in in television programs and films, often servants get so little. Uh, uh, they get so. I mean, they appear only to to uh, open doors, don't mm-hmm. they? And, well, I think I think servants are a kind of indicator, aren't they? They're, they're sort of shorthand way of saying someone's rich mm-hmm. or well off. It's a just it's um, so, Which is so uh, you know funny made because I mean that was in large part that was their function. I mean, in in the book, I mean, mm-hmm. when you look at sort of why people had servants, even you know you go through these this section where it talks about. Um, you know, a magazine of the day telling you, here's how you budget to have a servant so that you will have this status. And I think it's really interesting that that attitude is still so prevalent, even though, you know... Or just it, that, it, that it comes through in, in these storytelling choices. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think, you know... Yes, no, absolutely. Servants absolutely still exist, you know, in America. You know, if you have a gardener, if you have someone who comes in and cleans your house, it's just, you know, they aren't living with you in general. Right. Um... And it's just the, the relationship, I think, has become much less personal. And I think that's the sort of the way, at least in, in America, I think that it's evolved. It's that it's somehow because you're not dominating their entire life. Uh, but you still get the status, but you don't have to kind of have, I guess, the responsibility. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think, I think exactly. That's a, um, I, I think it's, 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 that, it's that very unique thing of actually living together, mm-hmm. isn't it? Which... which um, makes the difference between actually a job and a, an identity. Um, I mean, if you, if, you, if, you, you know, if you're employed by an agency, for example, and you come in to clean someone's house and then you do two hours and you go away again, um, then in a way it's a, a transaction that's far easier to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, um, although, of course, you might be more protected if you lived in. I mean, it, but, but you are entirely in that sort of case at the whim of your employer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you're dependent on the on the nature of your employer. All right. Well, I think that's the end of our uh, formal questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have an announcement because your publisher Ooh. was kind enough to send us some uh, promo copies of the book. And uh, <laughs> so we randomized and we selected of the, the listeners who submitted questions. Uh, and we'll Ooh. be sending a free copy of the book to Laura, Isela, Horton, and Carly. So we'll be in touch with oh, them to get that to them. Yeah. Uh, and we absolutely recommend it to everyone. It's a pleasure to read. We do. You learn so much. Well, thank you. You're welcome. I mean, yeah. it's just, it. Re- I really couldn't get over when I started reading it because Tom had read it last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually received it as a Christmas gift uh, from one of our listeners last year. And so I was reading it for this interview and like I got, you know, a couple pages in and I was like, this is just beautifully written because so often... Books like this are so dry and academic, mm-hmm. uh, but this has all of the academic integrity with the painstaking research, but also just really wonderful writing. Yeah, just really very, oh, just well, a pleasure to read. Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and it makes an excellent uh, holiday gift for the Downton Abbey or upstairs downstairs lover in your life. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, Anglophiles, oh, friends, relatives, anybody. So, yeah. <laughs> Oh, good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We really, really enjoyed speaking with you. Yes, thank you. Do you have, good. Well, uh, I've enjoyed it, too. Do you have another book in the works, or are you still uh, recovering from this one? <laughs> well, actually, 
actually, funnily enough, I'm doing another little book for Norton, which I've got to do very, very quickly on, on kind of, um, which your readers might be interested in, which is sort of uh, how to clean your house, old, old-fashioned tips ah. on how to look after your house from, <laughs> from, you know, servants' manuals and all that kind of thing. Oh, mm-hmm. fantastic. Well, yeah. definitely let us know when that comes out and we'll uh, be sure I to will. let everybody know. Yeah, yeah. All right, I wonderful. Will. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll hope to hear from you you again in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks. 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 Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, well, that was wonderful. It was. She was a delight. She was. Uh, we should have more authors on. I guess fan. so, That's yeah. great. Hey, cousins, are you an author? <laughs> Do you know an author? <laughs> if so, we definitely want to have your story on this podcast. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so thanks for joining us for this uh, extra special little Up Yours Downstairs Extra. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be back soon sometime with something i'm not totally sure when this is coming out uh (laughs) before the holidays i hope well yeah i would hope regardless until next time up up yours yours downstairs downstairs. luncheon out